Well, hey, everybody, so great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. We're honored to have you along for the ride. And today, we actually get to wrap up a series we've called Six Things That You Should Know About the Bible. You may recall that I had eight and Randy told me I could have six. So we got six. So now you know everything you need to know about the Bible after today. It's going to be awesome. But anyway, uh, the six things are a few things that I've picked up while teaching the Bible almost every week for the past 20 years. And they're things that I'm convinced can actually help you read the Bible in the way that it was intended to be read. And that, as it turns out, is a really big deal. I mean, as we've said all along in this series, the Bible has been without question the most influential printed document of all time. Uh, it's no exaggeration to say that it has shaped religious belief and practice for like millions of people all over the world for the past 2,000 years. But, but here's the thing, and, and this is why I wanted to do this series. I don't actually think the Bible is what many people think that it is. And, and here's why I say that. We'll throw it up on the screen. That th though the Bible looks like a book, it doesn't read like a book because it isn't really a book. It, it's more like a collection or a small library of 66 different books written over 1,500 years by around 40 different authors. Authors who, as we've said, were real people living in real places at real times. And so consequently, their writings were profoundly influenced by like the social and political and cultural realities in which they wrote. And as it turns out, keeping that in mind more than almost anything else will help you approach the Bible with the proper expectations. Okay, so now with our time together this weekend, I want to answer another one of those really great questions that one of you emailed me this week. I, by the way, had a record 30 emails this week. So that was a lot. So if I didn't get back to you yet, I'll get there. Don't even worry about it, right? Um, but this one in particular, I grabbed a hold of because it's another question that somewhat providentially leads us to another one of those things that I want you to know if you're going to read the Bible as, as it was intended to be read. And so here's how the question came to me. What's the deal with the book of Revelation, right? And I'm telling you, like, if you've been around church for any length of time or you like watching cable TV preachers, and if so, we have a support group for you after the service— yeah, I mean, you know, between the huge maps of the end times and, you know, the books at the Christian bookstore and the Left Behind movie, which, by the way, was originally made by Kirk, with Kirk Cameron, and then it was remade with Nicolas Cage. I about lost my mind. I was like, can it get better than Nicolas Cage and Left Behind? It wasn't a great movie. But anyway, yeah, like, what's going on with Revelation? And if you've ever tried to read it yourself, you know that it's really, and I've struggled with the correct adjective, um, <clears throat> unique. <laughs> um, and if you haven't read it, let me just kind of welcome you to the uniqueness by sharing one of my favorite passages. Uh, around 2,000 years ago, the author of the document we call Revelation wrote the following. <clears throat> the dragon, you're already like, whoa. <laughs> the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns and on each head a blasphemous name. The author goes on, The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. And then one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal head wound, but the fatal head wound had been healed. And then he tells us the whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. So you can see what I mean by unique. Like whatever revelation is, it isn't like any other book in the New Testament. And so 
not surprisingly, Christians have long read passages like this and tried to figure out what they mean. And historically, they've tended to interpret passages like these in one of two ways. They either approach it as a metaphor-rich prophecy, and they make the assumption that Revelation describes things that haven't happened yet, in which case they take a look at their own world and try to determine who best might fit the description of the beast. So that's one option. Uh, the other option would be to read it literally. And when you do that, you come up with pictures like this. I love the internet, don't you? Yeah. Uh, which honestly um, is simultaneously awesome and terrifying, I would say, right? It almost looks like somebody took the worlds of Star Wars and Harry Potter and that Netflix show Stranger Things and put them in like a Vitamix blender, and this is what came out, right? I mean, aside from the obvious biological impossibilities, this picture is just weird. I like that the crowns are on the horns. I think that was a good, good detail. But anyway, with the rest of our time together, I want to argue that there's actually a third and far better way for us to read the book of Revelation. And as it turns out, it's a way that not only helps us understand what's going on in it, but it also can inspire us, like today, to hope, even in the darkest moments of our lives. And so to begin to show you why I say that, I want to approach the book of Revelation like we have the rest of the Bible in this series. In other words, before asking what it might mean for us, I want to explore what it meant to the first people who read those words or heard those words. Uh, because as we've said, they were real people living in a real place with real questions and real problems and real doubts and real concerns. And as you'll soon see, when they read about a beast coming out of the sea with seven heads, I don't think they imagined a literal beast coming out of the sea with seven heads. So uh, what I want to do to get us going, I need to give you a bit of background on the document that we call Revelation, starting with the fact that it was originally a letter, like much of the New Testament documents. Uh, the Revelation was a letter written by an early Jesus follower named John, and he, we believe he was the youngest of Jesus' original disciples, and he lived longer than any of the other of the original 12. And, and by the way, scholars tell us that this was probably the same John who wrote the account of Jesus' life we call John, as well as those three documents towards the end of the New Testament that were not so creatively titled 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So, yeah, there you go, right? But anyway, decades after the resurrection of Jesus, uh, John has moved from the city of Jerusalem to a Roman province called Asia Minor. It's modern-day Turkey, uh, where he was serving as a pastor to seven congregations located in and around the city of Ephesus. And, and John actually says as much right in the beginning of the letter Revelation. Here's what John writes. He says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And so that's how he starts. And before I show you where he goes next, it's absolutely critical for us to understand that towards the end of the first century when John wrote this letter, the congregations under his care were facing absolutely incredible challenges. I mean, at that point in human history, the Roman Empire had conquered much of the known world. And they did so by marching into new territories and demanding that the people in those territories make a confession. They, they needed to confess that Caesar, or the Roman emperor, is lord, or boss, or supreme. 
And if they did make this confession, then they instantly became citizens of the Roman Empire. No other application process needed. And if they didn't, if they wouldn't confess that Caesar is Lord, well, then they were conquered, enslaved, and became a part of the Roman Empire anyway. Uh, moreover, the leaders of any organized opposition to Rome would often find themselves hanging on crosses as a warning to all who would consider resisting the Roman Empire. You might even say that when it came to the Roman Empire in the first century, resistance is futile. A few of you are nerds like me. And if you're not a nerd, which again is apparently most of you, you need to know that the phrase resistance is futile is a reference to the television show, epic show, late 80s, early 90s, Star Trek The Next Generation. You with me? Which just so happens to be my illustrious co-leader Randy's favorite show ever. And I think I know why. Check out this picture. I suspect that his love may flow from a deep appreciation of Captain Picard's haircut. I'm just saying. Mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, the Romans believed that military conquest was the most expedient way to ensure a world at peace. Uh, they called it the Pax Romana or the Peace of Rome. And there was even a line from official first century Roman propaganda that stated, and this is just stunning, they said that Caesar, or the Roman emperor, is the son of God, sent to earth to bring about a universal reign of peace and prosperity, which sounds really good. But, but of course, it didn't feel much like peace to people who had been conquered and crucified. To them, it felt awful and oppressive and evil. Okay, now, that said, it's imperative for us to understand that because of their faith in Jesus, John and the people in the congregations that he led, well, they had a very different vision for the world. You see, they believed that Jesus was the Lord, and they believed that Jesus had been sent by God to ultimately bring about a universal reign of peace and prosperity. So in a sense, you might even say that these early Christians were part of a resistance movement that was rooted in the conviction that this world isn't best improved through military conquest. This world is made better through things like compassion and mercy and grace and generosity and, and sacrificial love. In other words, these early Christians saw Jesus as the anti-Caesar, or maybe better, Caesar as the anti-Jesus or anti-Christ. Well, not surprisingly, this perspective put them on a dangerous collision course with the Roman emperor. And, and the Roman emperor who was in power when John wrote the document, Revelation, was a man by the name of Domitian. And Domitian ruled the uh, Roman Empire from 81 to 96 AD, and he was, by all accounts, a really bad dude. That's a technical term, I understand. Um, I took this photo of myself with the head from a massive statue to Domitian that you can see in the Archaeological Museum at Ephesus. And obviously it was during 2021 because I had to wear a mask, right? Um, but anyway, here are a few of my favorite reasons there are more than I'll have time to get to that I said Domitian was a really bad dude. Uh, first, Domitian demanded that his wife refer to him as my Lord and God. <laughs> Seriously. And, and I can't prove it to you, but I suspect that this clearly articulated power imbalance may, may have induced some complexity into their relationship. I'm just saying, right? Uh, Domitian also began his official letters with the words, your Lord and God commands you. And he demanded that people, all people, worship him or be put to death. 
And he also decreed that his statues must depict him in peak physical form, which according to every ancient source I could find, he was not, which I just love that. So the statues, they had to be buff, and he had to be holding a scroll to convey his, the understanding that he alone was worthy to rule. I also think it's worth noting that Domitian's father, a man named Vespasian, was said to have been miraculously healed from what should have been a fatal head wound, which he suffered while leading Rome's attack on the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD, but that this head wound had miraculously been healed. And again, if you've been paying attention, like a light on your dashboard should be flashing right now, so hold on to that. We'll come back to it later. But as it turns out, um, during his time as emperor, Domitian did a lot of things, but one thing was really unique. He reinstituted the Olympic Games, which had been sort of parked for a while. And fortunately for us, historians have preserved detailed accounts of how these games would unfold. And as you'll soon see, this is significant as much of the imagery from the games was leveraged by Jesus when he inspired John to write the book of Revelation. So here's, here's what historians tell us about the games. They would always begin by Domitian addressing the leaders of the various Roman provinces who had gathered for competition. Domitian would begin by praising each of them in turn on what they were doing well and then challenging them to change whatever from his perspective needed to be changed. And then after that encouragement, tens of thousands of spectators would stand to worship their king. And uh, they would be led in this cathartic adoration by 24 priests who would be dressed in white and wearing gold robes and gold crowns, which they would eventually remove and lay at Domitian's feet before they chanted things at him. Things like, well, great are you, Lord and God. Worthy are you to receive power and honor and glory Lord of lords, highest of the high, God of all things, Savior of eternity, and then my personal favorite, most humble individual in all. Of, I, I made that last one up. I just couldn't resist, right? But anyway, at some point in the mid-80s AD, the city council in Ephesus voted to become the world headquarters for Domitian worship. And in order to demonstrate their devotion to their king, they constructed a massive temple to honor him. It consisted of an absolutely enormous platform held up by 30-foot-high columns on which were carved the images of the 24 primary Greek gods and goddesses in the Roman pantheon. And at the top of it all stood a 27-foot-tall statue of Domitian that watched over the city. Whether you approached Ephesus by sea or by land, the first thing that you would come into view would be this massive statue of Domitian. And the temple was just constructed to convey to the world the idea that Domitian was the culmination of all deity. He stood atop all the others. He was the king of kings and the lord of lords. However, in spite of all of this acclaim and all this power and all this authority, all this architecture dedicated to him. Domitian, at the end of the first century, had a problem because a growing number of followers of a man named Jesus refused to bow before him. And their defiance had made him absolutely furious. 
There's a German historian by the name of Ethelbert Stauffer, which is an amazing name. If you're pregnant right now with a son, might I suggest Ethelbert to you? You call him Bert for short. It would be awesome. But anyway, Ethelbert Stauffer, and he described the challenge to Domitian this way in his book, Christ and the Caesars. He wrote, Domitian was the first emperor to understand that behind the Christian movement was an enigmatic figure that threatened his glory. He goes on to say Domitian was the first to declare war on this figure. And then obviously this reality uh, greatly complicated life for first century Christians living in the Roman province of Asia Minor and especially for those that found themselves living in the city that it made itself the world's center for Domitian worship. So here's just an example of, of some of the complexity that they would have faced. Uh, this is a picture of the Agora or city market in Ephesus. It was massive, one of the largest in the ancient world. And it was without question the epicenter of the city's economy. And now just imagine for a moment that you're a farmer, a plot of land somewhere outside of the city gates, and you've joined the Jesus movement. And one day, like every day, you would take your tomatoes or cucumbers or leeks and onions to the Agora to sell them. And, and as you're approaching the market, you learn something. You learn that Domitian has issued a new decree that states that in order to buy or sell anything in the market, you must first offer a pinch of incense on an altar to Domitian at the entrance to the market as a public act of worship. And then after doing so, you needed to receive a mark on your right hand to prove that you had worshipped. And now because Domitian claimed to be a god, and Jewish people like John had been taught from childhood that any human demanding worship was working for the devil or someone they called the dragon and was therefore a beast. They had no choice but to refuse to worship him. I mean, to offer incense in the markets of Ephesus would be to take on the mark of the beast. And, and I know what some of you are thinking, something like, where have I heard that before, right? Well, let me show you. Uh, this image of the mark of the beast surfaces midway through John's letter, Revelation. Here's what he tells us about the beast. He says, He also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had that mark. And so... Uh, the question, if you were a Jesus follower in first century Ephesus, was, do you offer incense to Domitian? Do you take on the mark of the beast? And, and, and before you answer, just think about this. If you don't, then you won't be allowed to sell your tomatoes or cucumbers or leeks or onions. And therefore, you won't be able to make the money that you need to take care of your family. So again, what do you do? Well, as I mentioned, um, the bit about the mark of the beast is far from the only cultural connection that can help us to read Revelation. Uh, for example, John's letter begins by conveying Jesus' addresses to each of the seven churches in the region, and they're structured in the same way that Domitian began his games. First praise, and then challenge. So here's an example, just to show you what I mean. Here's what John, Jesus tells John to write to the church at Ephesus. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work and perseverance, yet I have this against you. You've forsaken your first love. And this is a whole, you know, whole nother sermon, but just to notice, these are what you're doing well, and this is what I need you to work on. 
And just notice, though, that Jesus is leveraging the culture of the people with whom he's trying to communicate in order to make his point. And, and, and it's subtle at first, but I think Jesus wants his people to see Domitian for who he is, a deceiver who stands in opposition to God. And then as John continues to write, things get substantially less subtle. Check out this description that John has of a vision he receives of the throne room in heaven. He writes, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. And they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold around their heads. And I'm telling you, like, at this point, like, when this letter first came to these churches, they would be opened and then read publicly. And the first people who heard these words could not have missed what John was doing. He was pointing them past their present struggles with Domitian, and he was pointing them to the one who ultimately sits on the throne of the universe. And John continues, he says, Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, he says, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. It's like the language and the posture described here are just like what would happen during Domitian's games. And John is just getting warmed up. Check out what he says next. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of Judah, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and the seven seals. And the guy points and John says, and then I saw, I looked, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. It, it's almost like John wants to scream who is worthy to rule the world? Certainly not Domitian. I mean, as powerful as he seems right now, he's an imposter and a deceiver and a fraud. The only one who is worthy to rule is the Lamb of God who gave his life for the world. And then John continues. He says, and they sang a new song, saying, you you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. It, it, it's, like, it's like John's a coach and he calls his team in the locker room. He says, listen, I know how it feels. I know it's impossible, but I need to remind you of what's true. Domitian's power, great as it is right now, is temporary and it's fleeting. It won't endure. It can't endure because he's just a man. So don't bow and don't compromise in times of trial. Like hold on to the hope of what is ultimately true because hope 
changes everything. And if you think about it, we know this. We know it does. Hope that God is ultimately in control even when it doesn't feel like it. It's like we hold on to him, he holds on to us, and it gives us just enough strength to move forward, to carry on, to follow Jesus, even through the most complex situations. Well, I, I think my favorite part of the entire letter of Revelation is near the end, because John concludes with a description of the end of this age and the birth of the age to come. And, and by, this, by the way, this is a passage that I always read at funerals, because well, of the hope that it conveys, even in the face of death. So here's what John writes. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. And be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And then check this out. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. I'm telling you, when those early Christians first heard these words, they would have wept. I mean, they knew exactly why Jesus inspired John to use the images he did to describe the one true God. I guess what I'm trying to say is that Revelation was written by a real pastor living in a real place at a real time under real oppression. And in this letter, John, under the inspiration of Jesus, intentionally subverts the theater and the propaganda of the Roman Empire. It's like he's saying to his people, don't fall for the lie. There is a better way. Because John knows that in Jesus, who he had seen with his own eyes after he had been crucified, he knew that in Jesus, God had dealt decisively with evil once and for all, and that in the end, despite of what it feels like in any given moment, Jesus is still on the throne, and everything will ultimately be made right. Moreover, even in their darkest circumstances, Jesus can be trusted. I'm telling you, this was a powerful, incredible, unstoppable message of hope. This was the hope that changed everything for them. And this is the hope that can change everything for you and for me 2,000 years later. Because this hope, this ability to look beyond the clouds that are in our lives right now and to see the light that is to come is the essence of faith. Faith that gives us the ability to look at all the pain and the doubt and the confusion that so often visit us in this life. All those things that can be, make it so tempting for us to throw up our hands and to turn our backs on God and to say, okay, despite, you know, it's like, is this even worth it anymore? 
but it's like the faith to look past the clouds to see the light that hope rises because we know how this story ends. We know the one who is ultimately in control and ultimately controls the outcomes. And so we choose to stand in the face of sin and adversity and to proclaim our allegiance to a king whose kingdom will never end, a king who loves us more than we can comprehend, and a king who can even leverage challenging circumstances in our lives to build our faith. I'm telling you, that's the hope that's stronger than any challenge in life. That's the hope that changes everything. When the best of me
Would you stand? Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we confess that in there are times in this life that hope is fleeting. For some of us, we came into this place just desperate for a word from you, for a little bit of hope. My prayer is that as we explore this ancient letter written to early brothers and sisters who are struggling, that we may be inspired as they were inspired to look beyond the clouds and to see the light that is to come. For the kingdom that never ends. When peace will reign again and forever. So for those of us who came into this place needing hope, I pray that by your spirit we would find that. Hope to carry on, hope to take the next step, hope to trust that ultimately you are the one who controls outcomes and you are the one who loves us more than we can possibly imagine. We gather because 2,000 years ago you sent your son as light in darkness to make a way and to be the way. And we will forever be grateful. It is in his name, the name above all names, the name of Jesus Christ we pray. And everyone said, amen. Friends, before you leave, if you've come into this place and you just need to pray with someone, we've got some volunteers that would love to meet with you under the left screen. But uh, for the rest of you, grace and peace to you. We'll see you next week. i